12 stages of the Bible. Uh, you can see them uh, just even right there on the overhead. Uh, creation, Patriarchs, Exodus, Conquest, Judges, Kingdom, Exile, Return, Silence, Gospel, Church, and Mission. Uh, just a, a note to those of you who were, were not here last week, these stages or eras or periods of the Bible are not new with me. Uh, they are found in this book, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Uh, it's a book that Yvonne and I have given out to many people over the years just to help kind of overview the Bible. And, and oftentimes, just in the life of Rock Valley Bible Church, we're so involved in the minutia. I just wanted us to step back for a season here and to just look at the, the overall <clears throat> flow of history of the Bible story, just telling it in 12 different messages, 12 different weeks. Um, we have, uh, Yvonne has put back there some uh, song booklets and uh, some CDs of things that our family did. The Krauses, I think, were involved in singing that. Um, were others involved with that? Becca, were you involved in that? Just us and the Krauses. Uh, just, just helping you just to remember just raw things of the Bible. And in fact, last week, we learned a little song to help us catch all these phases. I'd like us to sing it again. All right, if you remember it, 12 stages in the Bible... Let's learn them one by one. Twelve stages in the Bible. Let's learn them one by one. Here we go. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, da 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 da, da silence, gospel. Church and mission. All right, we'll just do that every week and we'll, we'll just be experts on that. Just to help you, just to think about, okay, how the judges fit, how the kings fit, and where's the silence and exile and all that. That's my aim. Last week we looked at creation. Um, my outline was twofold. I said, let's look first at the importance of creation. In that point, I really tried to show you how important creation was to the whole flow of the rest of the Bible. Constantly the Bible's talking about the, the creation account. It's, the, it's the, the foundation of the Sabbath. It's the foundation of our worship. It demonstrates the sovereignty of God. It shows why God can, can give forth prophetical literature because He created the world. He knows what the world is about. Last week I also made the point that the, the creation account is, is foundational to all the Bible. You take away the creation and you destroy the Bible. I mean, it's plain and simple as that. And in fact, even I went furthermore, I said not only just the creation, but I said Genesis 1 through 11 contains the origins of, I think, all the doctrines in the Bible can in some sense find their way back there. And you take Genesis 1 through away, 1 through 11 away, and you undermine the Bible. I mean, think about what we learn in Genesis 1 through 11. It's humanity in its ideal state. What, what we're going to in the future with Revelation. We see in Genesis 1 through 11, marriage in its beauty and perfection. We see sin, how it started. We see hope for sin. It's the, um, the seed would raise up to destroy the, the serpent. We see sacrifice. We see death. We see the reason why death has come. We see judgment. We see, yet in the midst of the judgment, we see God's goodness and we see God's sovereignty. All those things are important. And then last week we looked at the story of creation went through Genesis 1 through 11, just highlighting key points along the way. Spent most of our time in Genesis 1 with the creation account itself. 
and then filtered through after that. There are four events in Genesis 1-11. through 11. It's the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. I just want to put those things in your mind. That's where we are. Today we've come to Genesis chapter 12 in my message here on the patriarchs. My message this morning is going to be outlined like it was last week. The importance of the patriarchs and then the story of the patriarchs. My first point will be conceptual. Just talking in theory about how important the patriarchs are. Second, I just want to tell you the story of the patriarchs. My first point, I want to really show show how important they are and their flow in biblical history like I did with creation. You'll be shocked, I think, to see how many times the Bible refers back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then my second point, I want to reflect upon their life stories. So, let's look at my first point this morning, the importance of the patriarchs. By patriarchs, I mean predominantly... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> this trio of men are mentioned many, many times in the Bible. Not including Genesis, where the story is told there. Abraham is mentioned over a hundred times in the rest of the Bible. From Exodus to Revelation. That's, that's a lot of times. A hundred times. More than 70 in the New Testament alone. It's a lot. J- Isaac is... Mentioned over 50 times in the Bible. Not, not quite as important, not quite as central. And then Jacob, outside of Genesis, is told, and this was shocking to me, more than 200 times Jacob is mentioned. The formula, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is mentioned 30 times outside the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 30 times and I just say the sheer number of these references to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all are referring back to Genesis, all show their importance in biblical history. Just as the creation account tells us of the origin of the world, so also does the patriarchs tell us of the origin of the covenant people of God. The creation account is important because it tells how God deals with all people. He's created all people. But the account of the patriarchs is important because it tells us how God dealt with His covenant people. When God mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the same sentence, it's referring back to everything that we'll look at in Genesis 12-50. to The the covenant that God made with the people of Israel, particularly starting with Abraham, and then going through Isaac, and then going to Jacob, and then going to the twelve of his sons, and pressing on down. It's a covenant that God will keep with the people of Israel, the people of God. Let me just give you a few examples to kind of ingrain this into your mind. Uh, during Exodus, the Exodus account, the people were in slavery and in bondage in a much difficult situation. So they cried to the Lord for help. And we read then in Exodus 2, verse 24, So God heard their groaning and remembered the covenant which He made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think about that. God made that covenant 400 years before. They were in slavery. They cried. They groaned. And God says, I'm going to remember that promise I made 400 years ago. How many of you are keeping promises you made 400 years ago? (laughs) And then when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush to to inform Moses about what he's going to do, he explicitly said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, I'm going to keep my promise to you. But God's promise to patriarchs wasn't just merely 400 years after He made the promise. God remained faithful to His covenant through the times of the Exodus, 
through the times of the conquest, the judge, even in the kingdom, a thousand years later, the time of David, his promise was still on the minds of the people of Israel and on God's mind himself. The ark had been out, captured at Beth Shemesh, wandered around, finally came back to Jerusalem, and listened, the people of Israel rejoiced, singing the words of Psalm 105. O seed of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, and his oath to Isaac. He also confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give this land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. So when the ark comes back to Jerusalem, they rejoiced, reflecting upon God's faithfulness of the promise He made to the patriarchs a thousand years later. When Elijah, one of the prophets, after David, was on Mount Carmel, battling with the prophets of Baal, when, when he prayed to his God, he prayed this way. 1 Kings 18, verse 36, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel... Let it be known that you are the God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done these things at your word. God, make it known that you are the God who is answering my prayer, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Referring back again to the patriarchs. He wanted to make it clear to whom the God he was praying to. He wasn't praying to the pagan gods. He wasn't praying to any God. He was praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then shortly before the exile, kingdom kind of pushed the end of the kingdom right before the exile, 1,500 years after the promise made to Abraham, God reminded Israel of His faithfulness to His promises and that He would continue to bless them. Jeremiah 33, 25 and 26 says, Thus says the Lord, If My covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, because his covenant does stand, and because he does remain faithful to his promises, but I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. I've been faithful in the past. I'm going to be faithful in the, pu- in the future. My covenant does stand. And listen, these are just a few examples of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob mentioned throughout the, the scope of biblical history together. Time after time after time, you see it repeated. God has made a promise to Abraham and he is faithful to keep those promises they made to the patriarchs. If you go today to Yellowstone National Park, there's a geyser there. And this geyser erupts every 90 minutes. And, and this geyser puts out four to 8,000 gallons of water every time it erupts. And, and this geyser erupts 100 to 200 feet in the air. This water just spews out of this geyser for several minutes. And what's this geyser called? Old Faithful. It's a little bit like God. He's just faithful on His time, always, every place. And that's the key message of the patriarchs. But if we continue on, even in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, the patriarchs are mentioned again and again on several occasions. Jesus referred back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, lifting them up as the fathers of the faith. Peter mentioned Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when preaching to the Jewish people that God had fulfilled His promises that He made to our forefathers. 
Stephen mentioned them in preaching to hostile, hostile crowds. It's on the cover of your bulletin. Just the, the mention there to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The writer of the Hebrews listed all of them in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Spends a lot of time on Abraham. Spends a verse on Isaac. Spends a verse on Jacob. And spends a verse even on Joseph. Talking about how they were people of faith. I say all of that to say that this covenant, the patriarchs that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is important. It's, in, it's important for us. These are the foundation of our faith. In fact, it, it's not just a historical interest. You ought to have a, a great interest as well as a believer in Christ. Paul's epistles often show to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and how, how the promises made there are even fulfilled in us through Jesus. Like, for instance, consider Romans 4 and Galatians 3. How Abraham is the pattern for our faith. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. More about that later. Think about how the covenant to Abraham is the gospel to us. In him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. More about that later. Through faith, we are sons of Abraham. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Galatians 3.29 In Galatians 3.15-18, Paul argues how the, the covenant was made to Abraham by promise and not by law because the promise came 400 years before the law and what we have today is based upon a promise because it came first and therefore is more important, pressing. Through faith, we are brothers like with Isaac. Galatians 4.28 And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. The story of the patriarchs is the proof of our election. Romans 9, 11-13, Though the twins, Isaac and Jacob, were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His election might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to Him, The older will serve the younger, just as I said, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. All these things. just The patriarchs weave their way through the New Testament. And the New Testament really, in many ways, is incomplete in and of itself. Because it's founded upon this understanding of the patriarchs. It's founded upon the Old Testament, most importantly upon what, who we will look at today. Well, that's the importance of the patriarchs. Let's look at the story of the patriarchs. And we're going to go Genesis 12 to 50. All right? So, we're obviously, we're not going to unpeel every nook and cranny. There's some chapters we're just going to even skip over. Um, but I think we'll touch down on perhaps some of the most important. I just want to tell you the story again of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and bring that story to us. And my aim in this is really to show you, as you might sense, the full impact of the words Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that when the Bible refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you might just kind of put my whole message in your mind and just think, oh yeah, all that, all that that God did with those, those people. I want for you to catch the significance of these men. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12. Now when I say Genesis chapter 12, so if you haven't opened your Bibles, I encourage you to do that right there. When I say Genesis chapter 12, does anything come in your mind? Like do you think, okay, Genesis chapter 12, yep, I know what that's about. Like you say, Genesis chapter 1 is all about creation, I know that. Genesis chapter 3 is about the fall, I know that. Do you know Genesis chapter 12? Is it familiar to you? Before you even read it this morning, is it familiar to you? If not, that's okay. 
If not, I would say, you know, do some work to make it familiar to you. Because is that important? Is this important as the creation? Because this is the, the foundation of the people of God right here in Genesis chapter 12. It sets the stage for God dealing with His covenant people, right? Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, that was Abraham's name before it was changed in Genesis 17, He said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now in these days, when these words came to Abraham, he was living in the land of Ur the Chaldeans, which is in and around uh, what we call today Iraq. And, And God came to him and called him to leave his home and to leave his land and go to a land which it says, I will show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. He says, I'm just going to show you this land. Abraham doesn't have the details. God says to go, and he says, I'll go. We see his obedience there in verse 4. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. That's faith. Faith is obeying even when you don't know the end. Hebrews 11 defines it this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Abraham was told to go out to this land, and uh, he had not seen it, but it was hopeful, so he obeyed and followed after it. He hadn't seen the land, but he believed God, obeyed Him, going out even to a land, going not knowing where he was going. By verse 7, he arrives in the land, and the Lord appeared to him again and said, To this land... To your descendants I will give this land. So he's there in the land and he says, this is it. You're in the promised land. You're right here. But at that point he was dwelling in tents. He had no permanent place. And you see he's kind of drifting around a little bit. But this was the land he was going to give to his descendants. Now various other points in the book of Genesis such a promise is repeated about giving this land. As it says there in chapter 12, verse 1, to this land I will show you Oftentimes, it becomes a focal point in Genesis. Abraham lived there dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Eventually, the people of Israel would move out of the land because of the famine, but they'd be brought into the land. They would conquest the time of Joshua. Toward the end of the days of the kings, Israel was captured, went to exile. But, as it says, but they did return. They're always returning to the land. They're coming back to the land. And during, during the time of the exile... Psalm 137 was written. kind of gives you a sense of how close, near, and dear the land is to the people of Israel. They said this, How can I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So in exile, they had this, this heart, this passion for the land of Israel. They wanted to be there. They wanted to, 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 to not forget, but be in Jerusalem. And like we read today in Psalm 126, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Uh, our mouth was filled with laughter and our, our tongue with joyful shouting because we're back in the land. It's the land that God promised to Abraham. We were out from it, but now we're back and now we're happy because we've reached the promised land once again. 
the land of Israel plays a crucial role in biblical history and, just a sideline here, it does play a crucial role in our day today. You pick up the paper almost any day and you're going to read about Israel and the land. Uh, just this past week, I mean, I should have brought in the newspaper, um, just, there was thoughts and discussions about um, building in the West Bank, which is in Israel. And uh, we said, stop, I think is what America has counseled Israel. Stop building there, because it, it disrupts peace. And Israel says, well, but there are people growing and they need a place to live, and so what do we do? And, and there's all this battle because Israel claims the land, because they go back to their father, Abraham. And the Arab world traces their lineage back to Abraham as well, through Ishmael. And they say, no, it's our land. And they say, no, it's our land. And there's this battle. And you, you can't understand Middle East politics without understanding Genesis 12 and Genesis 12 through 50. You just can't do it. That's why Genesis 12 is important. It helps you know what's going on in the world around us. But it's not merely verse 1 that talks about the land. Verse 2 and 3 are important, perhaps even more important. Verse 1 speaks about the land. Verses 2 and 3 speak about the blessings that God will bring upon Abraham. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. That is, from Abraham will come a host of people of whom all can trace their lineage back to Abraham. And literally, the people today flood the earth. Jewish people who can say, yes, I'm a direct descendant from Abraham. And that blessing of just this great nation, the seed of Abraham that goes through, will also be a blessing that comes to all the families of the earth. Verse 3. We'll pick up on that in a little bit. But turn over to chapter 15 now. And I'm just going to take you... I hope we just move forward, alright? So we were in 12, we're in 15, we're going to 50, alright? We're in verse chapter 15 now. God revisits this promise about His great blessing, this, this how He's going to make Him a great nation, how He's going to multiply from Him. He says in verse 5, God took Abraham outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. He said, so shall your descendants be. Now, in those days, they didn't have light pollution like we have today. And so when they would have gone out there, it would have been like a dark place. It would have seen scores of stars all across the sky. Abraham, can you even count them? One, two, three, four, five. And the idea is just to, just to overwhelm him with all the stars in the sky and just say, that's how many descendants you are going to have. Abraham would have been overwhelmed by the grace of God. It says in verse 6 that he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's the Gospel right there. Believing God and having it be reckoned as righteousness. How can you be righteous before God? By believing. And notice here that it's not because Abraham is righteous in and of himself that he's considered righteous by God. Because in fact, if you trace Abraham's life you'll see the ways he was not righteous at all. He grew up in Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, it's an idle, saturated place with many, many gods. Um, in fact, it says in Joshua 24, verse 2, that his family served other gods and not the true living God. So, Abraham came from an idol-worshipping family. Jewish tradition holds that even Terah himself was an idol-maker. We don't know if that was the case, but it shows the lineage of Abraham was not a God-fearing man. But God in His grace called Abraham, not because of anything in Abraham, but because of God's grace, His mercy and kindness, just plucked him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And then later, as you trace through um, 
Abraham's life. He's not a righteous man. He's far from perfect. In chapter 16, we will see him engaged in sexual immorality. In chapter 20, we see Abraham fearful, deceiving a pagan king. That's why the statement in chapter 15, verse 6, really is encouraging to us. Because it shows how God deals with us. He makes us righteous by Christ. So we believe in Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection. God then takes our faith and credits it to our account as righteousness. Listen, we don't stand before God based on what we have done. It's not our own righteousness. We stand based upon the righteousness of Jesus. We, we merely need to come to God believing this blessing. I think about how easy that is. I mean, could it be easier to say, God, I just believe in You, I trust in You. And, and then God says, wow, well, you believe in Me? Here's the righteousness of Jesus poured over your soul. You're not going to get to the righteousness of God by your church attendance and your Bible reading, your praying or doing works of righteousness. I mean, those things are good. And then they flow from a life of salvation, but they don't, they don't get you there to begin with. Rather, you get there by believing in Jesus. And just as Abraham believed God was reckoned to him as righteousness, so also we simply believe in Jesus and it's reckoned to us as righteousness. That really, that blessing here in chapter 15 goes back to chapter 12 again, that Abraham's blessing would be so vast it would cover the planet. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the promise of the Gospel to us. Because through Abraham came the Messiah. And the Messiah came not just for the, the Jewish people, but came for the whole world. And we, Gentiles in Rockford, who believe in the Messiah, receive the blessings of the Messiah. And through our faith in the Messiah, we become heirs of the promise made to Abraham. I mean, that's the glorious news of the New Testament. That's what blew Paul away. That's what ought to blow you away as well. But it comes back to Abraham. It comes back to God's grace upon his life. And that's why... Abraham's important. And that's why it's encouraging also, because Abraham's faith was not perfect. It's not that God gives us righteousness if we have perfect faith. Remember, the disciples even had little faith. God takes even imperfect faith and credits to our accounts as righteousness. Because as we continue on in Genesis, we'll see his faltering faith. God promised here in verse 15 He'd be a great nation. And in chapter 16, the very next chapter, we see Abraham disbelieving the promise. Rather than believing God, he'd raise up great descendants after me. Abraham went into to Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, committing adultery. Awful, awful time. She conceived and bore a son named Ishmael. And we see in chapter 16, verse 12, him described, he will be a wild donkey of a man. And his hand will be against everyone. And everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. You know, that's, that's an amazing verse because it describes so accurately the descendants of Ishmael. What was true of Ishmael is true of his descendants. The Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael, and Arabs are known far and wide for their antagonistic spirit. They're not known for being peace loving people, all right? They're not the Amish, they're the Arabs. It's a big difference between this. Predominantly, they do live to the east of the Jewish people in Israel. They live in the Iraqs and the Irans. And there is conflict. There's no peace with them. And, and they are at war with the Israeli people. Even Iran today wants to knock Israel off the planet. If they could do it, they would. Such is the hatred. Such is the strife. And everyone's hand will be against him. That is the Arab people. 
And these troubles have come, listen, because Abraham's faith was small. He trusted his own flesh rather than the sure promises of God. But God's blessing to Abraham wasn't through Hagar and Ishmael. It came through Sarah, Abraham's wife. Look at chapter 17. This makes it clear. I want to begin reading at verse 15. I want to read 15 through verse 22. God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. And then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. I mean, you, you see this Abrahamic covenant being repeated. Abraham be the father of nations, and Sarah then will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Why did he laugh? It's because he didn't believe. He laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man, one who is a hundred years old, and will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac, Yitzhak, to laugh. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. There you see, it's through Isaac. It's my covenant's going to be with Isaac. Now, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princesses and I will make him a great nation. That's the Arab nations. But my covenant I'll establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will give birth to you at this season next year. And we finished talking with him. God went up from Abraham. We see Abraham faltering in his faith. When God says, Sarah's going to bear a son, he's like, yeah, I'm 100, and Sarah is 90. Um, God, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way. But God said, no, it is through Isaac that your descendants will come. My covenant will be established. And then in chapter 18, we see a similar story, conversation. Three men come, perhaps angels, perhaps the angel of the Lord, probably, coming. And they said the same thing that uh, God had said in verse 21. That this time, Sarah will have a son next year. And Sarah, overhearing the conversation, which mothers are often eavesdropping in the book of Genesis, you'll find that out. Sarah, overhearing the conversation, laughed in the tent and was confronted about her laughter. She said, I didn't laugh. And he said, oh, you did laugh. And, and uh, she didn't believe. But, but interesting, in this time, Abraham was acting a little bit like Adam. He didn't step in and preach to Sarah and say, Sarah, believe God. Believe the promises in Him. I think that Abraham's faith was, walt- was waffling as well. Even the second time that God came to him. But according to God's promise, sure enough, it came to pass. Look at Genesis chapter 21. It's the story of Isaac. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as He had promised. God is a promise-keeping God. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of the son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. There we see, we see Abraham, and now we see Isaac. Isaac was the miracle child. He was born to a mother in her 90s and a father who was 100. Now the key role that Isaac plays isn't so much as he did, but really 
the way in which Isaac put forth his father's faith. Of course, I'm talking about Genesis chapter 22 in which Abraham's faith does shine here. Though he was weak, he is strong in Genesis chapter 22. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. He tested Abraham. It's an incredible test. He's going to tell him to offer up his son. Look what he says there. He says, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Uh, You've got to catch how verse 2 sets up the sacrifice. He says, take now your son. Abraham might say, well, listen, I've got two sons. I got Ishmael and I got Isaac. And he says, no, 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 your only son. I thought I had two sons. Well, God said, no, you've got one son. I'm just looking at Isaac, who I'm, I'm talking about. Ishmael, by the way, is living off in Egypt at that time, according to chapter 21, verse 21. But he says, no, here's the son I want you, your only son, the son whom you love. And I think about Abraham and his love for Isaac. And it had to be great. It had to be vast as this was the miracle child in his old age. I mean, we love our children, but, but I think a, a child born to us, we're 100 years old after God promised against hope, against all hope, that would be a special child. A child of destiny, perhaps. We'd really love. And then he identifies him, the child you love, Isaac. As verse 1 says, it was a test for Abraham. As difficult as confusing and as hard to understand, Abraham at this point shines. He believes God. And as the story unfolds, Abraham rises and takes his son to the top of Mount Moriah, which in all probability is the same mount where the temple was built. It's a key mountain in, in Israel. Places Isaac upon an altar. And, and by the way, Isaac was um, probably in his teens at this time. Could have overwhelmed a dad of 100 years old. 113 at that time. Probably could have overwhelmed him. But Isaac probably subtly perhaps exhibited faith too. Said, okay, dad, this is what God says. Sure. Laying down his life willingly. About to kill him and then God stopped him. He says in verse 12, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, the son whom you love from me. God instead, verse 13, provided a ram in the thicket as a substitute. Abraham passed the test, demonstrating he had faith in God. Even willing to follow him anywhere and to believe anything that God had said, even when he didn't understand God's plan, because he didn't understand God's plan. It says in Hebrews that He was willing to offer up Isaac because he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, which he also received back as a type. He said, listen, I'm believing the promise. It was me. It's through Isaac your descendants should be called because you told me that. And if you tell me to sacrifice Isaac, it's got to be through Isaac, so I'll sacrifice him, but but I'm going to see him raised from the dead. That was his reasoning. He didn't quite think exactly right. But his reasoning was filled with faith. And God blessed that. And he says, the Hebrew, writer of the Hebrews says, the sacrifice of Isaac upon the altar was a type, which he also received Isaac back as a type. If 
referring about the type of Jesus. If, if you look here in Isaac, you can find so many parallels. Isaac willingly laid himself down to be sacrificed, to be died, to be killed. Jesus was the lamb that God provided. He was the ram in the thicket. He was the substitute. Rather than Isaac, Jesus came. He was slain for us. As difficult as it was for Abraham, it was difficult for God as well to send His only Son whom He loved. This is my beloved Son. This is my Son I love. But God demonstrated His love in doing this for us that through faith we might share the inheritance of Abraham. And you can dig through here and see the typology coming out from the, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac to everything that God did with Christ. And, and it's intentional because the writer of the Hebrews says he was a type. Well, at this point, chapter 22, the, the life of Abraham winds down. Sarah dies in 23 and Abraham is soon to die. And, and Isaac's life just continues on, kind of unremarkable, just, just continues on. He finds a bride here in verse chapter 24. Um, Marries in chapter 25, then um, Abraham dies, and then Rebecca gets pregnant. This pregnancy, though, is, is unique. It's not just one child, it is twins. And uh, she noticed this struggle in her, in her womb, and she, she pleaded with the Lord. And here's what God said to her about that. Chapter 25, verse 23, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And the one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. We have some older children here, and some older children. Becca, you're an older child, right? Krista, you're an older child, older children. Amy, you're back there, older child. Okay, now, it says here that the older shall serve the younger. How does it work in your guys' homes? Not like that, right? It's the younger serves the older, right? That, that's how it always is. But God, God, God knew, no, no, it's going to be older is going to serve the younger. In other words, the younger is going to be prominent. What's interesting here is that these twins, they had not yet even been born. They did nothing good or bad. But it's so that God's purpose according to His choice might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, the older will serve the younger. That's what God had prophesied. It's not what we'd expect. We, we expect the firstborn to be the prominent. But this is the ways of God. It's, it's not always the firstborn. In fact, even you see that with Isaac and Ishmael. What is it? It's the, the, the second son is actually then considered his only son. And here Jacob and Esau, we see the older first, but it's the younger has the prominence. And then even Joseph, who's one of the younger ones, has the prominence. So we just, we just see that. Always God blesses the younger, the one with no rights. Well, verse 25 and 26, we see the account of his birth. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And afterwards his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Now Jacob means one who supplants or the one who deceives and my, how appropriate that was. If you know anything about Jacob, you know that he was a, a deceiver and a schemer and a supplanter. The stage had been set for their life. Okay, you got Esau out first. He's the older. He's going to serve the younger, Jacob. And it, it fleshes out in several different ways, um, mostly by the way that Jacob schemes his evil. But we see the conflict. 
of, of what takes place in verse 27. The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Maybe this is why there's conflict here. Jacob was a manly man. I mean, he wanted to go hunt. He wanted to shoot those deers. He wanted the outdoors. He liked the wind and the dirt and the boundary waters. So he loved. Jacob, on the other hand, was a gentleman. He liked the office work. He went to work each day in a tie. He liked cooking over hunting. He wanted to be in the tent rather than on the field. And you think about the conflict with these boys. What are they going to do together? I, Esau, hey, let's go outside and hunt. Jacob says, no, let's stay inside and read. <laughs> it just doesn't, it just didn't mix. Conflict. Uh, another reason there's conflict, maybe because of the favoritism of their parents. Look at verse 28. Now, J- Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. I just love the food. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Parents at odds over their children is bad news. You know, split your children, parents, just have a favorite. In this case, Rebecca loved Isaac and Jacob loved Esau. But perhaps even the, the greatest reason for the conflict was because of their character. Jacob was a deceiver and manipulator and he was rent, relentless. I mean, look here in verse 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and was famished because he was out running around chasing all these animals out. And, and Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. That's the nation, Edom. He also lived to the east of Israel. Became a pain in the neck, the Edomites did, to the Jewish people. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So what, of what use is the birthright to me? If I'm dead, I don't have a birthright and I'm about to die. So He wasn't really about to die, folks. Okay, He could have survived long. But he was hungry. But here's Jacob scheming. Up, oh, up, oh, up. Oh, can't have it yet. You know, you kids ever do that? You want something, you hold it. Oh, you know, and you make some bribe. That's the time to do it. You hold something over. He's holding over this red stuff, this stew or whatever it was. And so Jacob, verse 33, said, First swear to me, and he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Thereby Jacob supplanted his brother. To us it might not seem a big deal, but it was a big deal for them. The birthright is the path to the Father's blessing. The birthright is the inheritance. Birthright is everything, but he just sold it for a meal. And then chapter 27 tells a story about how he stole his blessing too. Isaac is about to die. He's ready to give the blessing to Esau, the firstborn. Before he does, he says, Go out and prepare me a savory dish. There you go. You see Isaac loving Jacob because he just can feed his stomach, right? And then he would bless them. And so... Esau goes out to the field to hunt game for it. But Rebekah, here it is the same theme again, overhearing the conversation, knowing that Isaac is about to bless Esau, goes and talks with Jacob, her favorite, and says, okay, Jacob, you've got to get this blessing. Here's the plan. Um, Isaac can't see very well. He's pretty old. So how about, let's go and get a goat from the barn, not a deer from the field. Go and get that. And, and come, we'll dress you in Esau's garment so that you'll smell like Esau. And, and since Esau's a hairy man, we'll, we'll put goat skins on, on your hands, on your neck to deceive him. So when he reaches out and touches you, he'll feel hairy. And, and this will all take place. We must do it quickly because Esau's returning from the field. And then Jacob, you'll inherit the blessing. 
Jacob was a little bit um, doubtful about it. But then Rebecca says, hey, let's do it. Even if he finds out the shame be upon me, is what he said, she said. And then let me just read, beginning of verse 18. Then he came to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Now, let's count how many times Jacob deceives Isaac. Alright? Here's number one for you. Ready? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you've told me. <clears throat> Get up. Please sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. Lies. Verse 20. Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have it so quickly, my son? Number two, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Even bordering, taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, saying, God prosper me. No, it was Rebecca who schemed. It's your wife, buddy. Then Isaac said, verse 21, Please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Isaac's doubting. But Jacob, again, came close to his father, Isaac. And he handed out his, his, his arms and his neck, which was covered with goat skins. And, and he felt them and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? I think that's the fourth time he could have told the truth. And he said, I am. He lied again. And so again, bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him and he ate he also brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. And so he came close and kissed him. And here's perhaps another thing. His garment smelled. His father's kissing him, calling him Esau, and totally, he just didn't stop it. At least five times he's lying in this passage, deceiving his dad. And when he smelled the garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. There's a lot in that blessing I'd love even to unpack about cursed are those who cursed you and blessed are those who blessed you. That explains much of Bible history, much of the history of the world. God's blessing upon the Jewish people. But anyway, Jacob lives up to his name. He deceives, supplants at least five times, stealing Esau's blessing. And such actions brought great friction even more between Jacob and Esau. Verse 41 Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. So these guys are at war now with each other, about like Cain and Abel. <clears throat> Rebecca again, overhearing, overseeing what's going to take place, told Jacob how he needs to flee to Laban, his, her brother. But she doesn't want Jacob merely to just run away. She, she conceives... It's his plan. So where do you think that Jacob got this deceiving character? From his wife, from his mom probably, Rebecca. She schemes against her husband. She manipulates her husband. It says in verse 46, I'm tired of living with the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of land, what good will my life be to me? 
It's a, a lie. He just wanted him to flee so he'd be safe from Esau. But conjured up this whole thing about getting a, not wanting to have a daughter-in-law from the daughters of Hephath. So, Isaac sent Jacob away to Laban. And he did find a wife there. That was a good thing. But I hope you see, and this is one thing that I'm trying to drill into you, is that the, the patriarchs aren't righteous people. Sometimes we think about the patriarchs, we lift them up. Like, people think about the founding fathers of the United States. And, and, and some people have this grandiose, great view of these men were all great and godly men. Now, it's true, there was some Christianity there, and there was some greatness there, but I'm not quite sure that they were as good as everyone might put them up to be. But patriarchs the same way. They're scoundrels like uh, Jacob. They're half-believing like Abraham. But God still extends His covenant to them. Listen, and that's the point. That's the point of the patriarchs, is that we have unfaithful, ungodly people, but God is still going to bless them, such is His election and grace. Well, chapter 8, verse 12. So on his way to Laban, he has a dream. And here again, this is this kind of key because it shows God's commitment to bless them. Verse 12, And he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So there's this ladder up and down, probably the blessings of God coming up and down, the people of Israel dwelling with them. And then it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. There again, you see the land that was promised back in Genesis chapter 12. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and the north and the south. I mean, your, your descendants will be like the stars of heaven. Another place God had told Abraham would be like a sandwich by the seashore. Here's like the dust of the earth. Again, the same thing. The, the seed, the blessing that's coming in Genesis 12. And in you... And in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's the gospel again coming to Jacob, then flushing out the messianic promise to him. And that's an incredible promise to a guy who just swindled his brother out of his birthright and his blessing, boldfaced lied to his father, joined with her, his mother in manipulating her husband and his dad to help these things take place, and then he receives assurance from God that he'll be blessed. The point of the patriarchs is covenant faithfulness of God. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. And God in His grace promised to bless Abraham and his children. God in His grace promised that blessing would go through Isaac even though he wasn't Abraham's first offspring. By His grace, God said the blessing would go through Jacob even though he was a deceiver, a deceiver and the secondborn. Listen, none of these guys deserved a thing, but that's the point. The patriarchs weren't the most righteous people to walk the planet. And in fact, when you read through the story of Jacob, you realize how terrible things are with these guys. It just gets from bad to worse. In chapter 29, we read of how Jacob went to Laban, met Rachel, said, oh, I want to marry her. <laughs> and Laban, right, from, from Rachel's side of the family, Rebecca, whatever, but basically said, okay, seven years, you serve me, and then I'll give you my, my daughter. So seven years, here's the arrangement. Seven years you serve, and then you get Rachel. And then the night of the marriage, Laban swaps Leah for Rachel. And, and Jacob certainly was so snockered on wine and so drunk that 
And they came together as husband and wife. He didn't even know it was Leah. Because he woke up in the morning and said, What is this? You switched. And then Laban, right, being a little bit like her, his sister, said, Well, it's not our custom to marry off the younger first and marry the older first. He said, How long did I work for you? Weren't, weren't the, the, the terms of this contract clear? Wasn't it seven years for Rachel? I think I mentioned that a lot of times. I showed a lot of attention to Rachel. I wasn't showing much to Leah because she... She's not the, the hottest one around here, but Rachel is, and I was pursuing her, and then you switched. You intentionally did this to me. He said, okay, give me another week. Give me seven days, and then you can have Rachel also. So here, polygamy, like that. And then they start having these children. Rachel is barren, but God shows forth light on, the, on Leah, the unloved, like God always is. Leah born four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And then uh, when, when Rachel saw that that Leah was bearing all these children and she couldn't. She said, here, Jacob, why don't you go into my maidservant learning from Grandpa? Go into Bilhah. And so then Dan and Naphtali were born and Leah said, I can play that game. And so here's Zilpah. And so all of a sudden he got four women in his life. And Gad and Asher were born. And then Leah, her womb goes up again. Isaac and Zebulun are born. And finally Rachel, Rachel bore, bears Joseph and Benjamin. These are 12, 12 tribes of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Iskar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. All 12 of these then become, from a polygamous relationship, become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the sons, you think they're righteous people? No. You read through the story of what their sons did and you're shocked at their wickedness. When Shechem defiled Dinah and, and wanted to marry their sister. It says, okay, as long as you, everyone in the city is circumcised. This is chapter 34. So they said, okay, we can join and intermarry with you. And they're circumcised. And then they wait till the third day. So verse 25 says, when they're in pain, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. This flat-out trickery to destroy a whole city in a most painful way. In chapter 38, Judah commits adultery. Tries to cover it up, but can't cover it up. Tries to, I mean, here's, here's Judah. This is the line of the Messiah that goes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. It's coming through this wicked, sexually immoral man. In chapter 37, all of these brothers sell Joseph as a slave to a band of traveling Ishmaelites. And then, they lie to their father about the fate. A lie that haunted them throughout their lives, even decades later when they finally came into Joseph's presence. I hope you see that these patriarchs aren't righteous people. The, the leaders of the tribes of Israel are not righteous brothers but God had made a promise and He still kept true that promise. Well, my time is up, but I want to get to chapter 50, so let's turn to chapter 50. Right? The story of Joseph is too long to tell this morning that waits another day. But Let me simply say that God overruled their sin. God was involved in their sin so as to bless the sons of Jacob. They sold in Egypt Joseph becomes prominent there. They're hungry, famined in the land here of uh, Israel, Palestine. And so they find their brother's been the ruler and provides everything for them. 
And then in chapter 50, verse 20, we have the, the crux of Joseph's story. They were pleading about, well, can you please, we are your servants, please forgive us, right? Because we have sold you, yes, we've lied, but now please, you know, once Jacob dies, maybe we're in it, in for bad news from Joseph. And they said, please don't. And then Joseph said in verse 19, do not be afraid, I'm not in God's place. In other words, I'm not going to bring this back upon you. It says, you, as for you, verse 20, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You meant evil, right? And God, through that evil, meant good. And what was the good? Is that God is going to preserve His people of Israel. They're, they're dying in the land of Palestine because of the famine. He says, I'm going to do good for you and I'm bringing you out. I'm bringing you here into Egypt to protect you for a season. And then verse 21, So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and for your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. <laughs> There's Joseph being the one who's going to provide for not only the 12 tribes, the 12, 11 brothers, but also then for their children and for their grandchildren. Joseph's going to be the means of that great blessing. And I just say this, in verse 20 and 21, Joseph extending forgiveness to them, Joseph dealt with his brothers as God dealt with the patriarchs. They did much evil, but God did much good. And Joseph understood the covenant made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. These are like his last words. What's he going to tell? What do you think he's going to tell these guys? Without looking ahead, what do you think he's going to tell these guys? He's going to talk about Abraham. He's going to talk about Isaac. He's going to talk about Jacob. It's the foundation of everything they need to remember. I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which He promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He says, you know what? That's the land... God's promised to provide it for you. You're out of it now for a season during the famine, but God is going to be faithful to the promise He made to the patriarchs. He'll bring you back into the land. And then Joseph, in an act of faith, made mention, gave orders concerning his bones. He says, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt awaiting the exodus. So there's the patriarchs. I just say they're important. There's a story of them. When you think of them, don't think of them as highly exalted. Think of them as as sinners who God was gracious to. Because that's where we are, right? We're sinners who God is gracious to by faith in Christ. Let's pray.